The text for the sermon this Lord's Day is from Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. Proverbs 27, verse 1. Wherein we find these words. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. In our fast-paced society, keeping a calendar of coming events and appointments has become a regular part of our life, especially with a failing memory like my own. It's absolutely necessary to keep a calendar. We schedule appointments for almost everything. To see the doctor, we schedule appointments or meetings to see clients and business associates. We schedule a day to go shopping. We schedule an examination to be taken at school. We schedule even our vacations, sometimes three, four, five, six months in advance so that we can get the best price on tickets. We become so oriented to filling our calendars and making future plans for this particular event or for that particular event that we may be tempted at times to forget that it is God himself that holds our future and ordains our path every day. It is God that holds not only our todays, not only our yesterdays, but it is God who holds our tomorrows as well. And we therefore forget to sanctify our plans, even our ordinary plans for the week, with God's blessing God's prayer upon those plans. It is so easy with such a busy schedule, such a hectic schedule, to act as though we ourselves are sovereign in directing our own paths and ordering our own lives. Listen to the word of the Lord from Proverbs 16.9. A man's heart deviseth or planteth his way, but the Lord directed his steps. Or from Proverbs 19.21, there are many devices, or again I add, plans, in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Or finally in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24, man's goings, that is man's steps, are of the Lord, how can a man then understand his own way? Man proposes, it's been said, but God disposes all things for his own glory and for the good of his own people. Therefore, what a sad commentary upon us as Christians and especially as Calvinists who profess to believe in an absolutely sovereign God, when we do not look to our gracious God 
to direct us and to bless us in all of our plans for tomorrow. Since our times, not just some of our times, but all of our times are in his hands. According to Psalm 31, verse 15. From our text today, let us consider two main points. First of all, a caution about the future. Proverbs 27, 1a, the first part of verse 1. And second, a reason for this caution. In Proverbs 27, 1b, the second part of that verse. Our first main point then, a caution about the future. Proverbs 27, 1a. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, the scripture says. Here Solomon warns us concerning a sinful inclination to which we are all subject. What is that sinful inclination? It's presuming upon the future that we will live out tomorrow so as to fulfill all of our appointments, all of our desires, all of our dreams that we have planned. Such a presumption on our part proceeds, dear ones, from a sinful pride and even from unbelief. For in so doing, we usurp, whether we intend to or not, we usurp the place of God, acting as though we were the ones who order our lives, as if we were the masters and lords of our own lives. Dear fellow Christians, when the Lord is excluded from our plans for the future, even, as I said, those more ordinary plans, not just the extraordinary or special plans, but even the ordinary plans, say, of going shopping or going to work or attending school, we sinfully presume that the Lord will grant us another day to do these things, and all apart from any acknowledgement that tomorrow belongs not to us, but belongs to the Lord. James draws our attention to the same presumptuous sin in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. James 4, beginning with verse 13 and reading through 16. There we read these words. Go to now, ye that say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now... Ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Notice that James writes concerning this sin, that when our plans for tomorrow are not made tentatively in our minds, and even tentatively with our lips, if the Lord will, we show that we rejoice, in effect, in our own pride. 
James declares that all such rejoicing in our pride about the certainty of there being a tomorrow for us is evil. It is to proudly, according to James, it is to proudly rob God by our actions and by our speech of his sovereign power and divine authority over our lives. Let me ask you, from what source does such pride issue forth? Well, ultimately, I submit to you it's from unbelief and misplaced faith. For the Lord reveals to us in his word that it is in him that we live and move and have our being and not in ourselves, according to Acts 17, verse 28. For every beat of our heart, every breath that we take, every thought that comes to our mind, every movement of our hand or our feet, every minute that we live, is ordained by Almighty God, according to Job chapter 14, verse 5. Now, do we believe this is true? Well, as Christians, of course, we believe this is true. However, the unbelief or the misplaced faith appears in that we think, we speak and act as though it were not true. When we make plans for tomorrow apart from sanctifying those plans through prayer, seeking God's blessing according to his revealed will for those plans. For just as the food we eat is to be sanctified by God's blessing through prayer, no less are our days, our tomorrows, to be sanctified by God's blessing through prayer. For they are equally a gift from God. God reveals that he is to be included, dear ones, in all of our plans for the future. Not simply the big plans, but also the ordinary plans. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, perhaps summarizes it as well as any other passage in the Scripture. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. Here we see that if we do not acknowledge God, if we do not acknowledge God's truth, if we do not acknowledge God's wisdom, if we do not acknowledge God's knowledge of the future, if we do not acknowledge God's holiness and righteousness in making our plans for the future, but basically treat him as if he didn't know, he doesn't care what we do, then we cannot be directed by the Lord as we have no basis as, as far as a promise if we are not placing our faith and trust in such a God. In fact, if we do not do so, the problem with us not receiving the direction that we may want in some sense is that we are not looking to God. We are not placing our faith and confidence in Him. Now, dear ones, I would have you see that God here is not in the Proverbs chapter 27 verse 1. God is not condemning all goals and plans that we might set for the future as if it were sinful in and of itself 
for us to have plans or goals. That's not the point. What he condemns here, dear ones, is our not seeking his blessing in all of our plans for the future and thus acting as though we were the masters of our own lives. In various ways, we see how God, in fact, does approve of such godly foresight on our parts in preparing for the future. For example, consider the following admonitions from Scripture in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5. It says, He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. No preparation, no plan, no goals concerning the future. That's condemned by God. Proverbs 24, verse 27 says, Prepare thy work without, that is outside, and make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards build thine house. In other words, God says, make plans to provide for yourself before you build your house, before you undertake that type of a thing. Make sure you've got the money to be able to build your house before going out and buying a house and saying, well, now how am I going to pay for this? Make some plans. Have some foresight with regard to those types of matters. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 25, uses the analogy of one of God's creatures, the ants. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Look to the ant. You likewise, as God's people, make due preparation. We can also look at the example, for example, of various people in the scripture as to how they prepared for the future. You remember the example of Joseph in in Genesis 41, who made preparation for the seven years of famine during the seven years of prosperity, when it would have been perhaps much easier simply to sit back during those seven years of prosperity and just eat, drink, and be merry. Make no preparation for the famine that was to come. You may also recall another illustration of preparation in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 and following, wherein the Lord commends the foresight of those who planned and made a profit with the money given by a master to his servants. The master gave to some five talents of gold or silver, uh, gave some uh, two talents, and gave some one talent. The servant, interestingly enough, the servant who had been given one talent did not make preparation, did not go forth, did not invest it, And therefore, when the day of accounting came, when the master said, what have you done with the the money that I gave to you? The others gave the same amount plus basically double the amount that they had been originally given. The one who had been given one talent returned the one talent to his master. The Lord says that he's a wicked servant. He didn't lose the one talent. He buried the one talent. He didn't use it to to profit his master. 
Obviously, one of the lessons we ought to learn from this is that God calls us to use the talents that he has given to us, and he's given at least one talent, as it were, one gift to all of us. What are we using for the glory of Jesus Christ? Are we rather bemoaning what we don't have? Are we rather envying the gifts and abilities and talents of others? Are we going forth and using even the one talent that God has given to us for his glory? Are we making plans? Are we preparing how we can use that talent? Are we feeling sorry for ourselves? Wallowing self-pity. The Apostle Paul planned, he prepared to visit the saints in Rome after his visit to Jerusalem, according to Romans 16, verses 24 and 25. He made plans. He said, if the Lord wills, this is where and this is when I plan on coming to visit. Beloved, it is the lazy sluggard who does not make godly goals for his future but merely awaits without preparation to see what each day will bring unto him. Can you imagine how foolish it would be to take a trip to a foreign country and to make no preparations at all for it? A place you had never been before. You didn't have any idea how to get there, but you're just going to hop on a bus or plane or whatever. We would say, that that would be ridiculous. That'd be foolish. But, dear ones, do we, in effect, live each of our days and our tomorrows in the same manner by not, by not making plans like a lazy sluggard? It is a godly thing to make plans and to set goals for the future. But we need to do so with God's blessing, according to his revealed will that he has given to us in the Holy Scriptures, through prayer. The point of our biblical text, dear ones, is that in all of our ways we must acknowledge the Lord. Which implies we do not simply do what we want to do and then seek his rubber stamp upon our own plans. Our text implies, even if it does not explicitly state it, it implies that we must seek the will of God as found in Holy Scripture. Dear ones, there is a revealed and divine standard by which Christians must live and order their lives. And the Holy Scripture is the uh, only infallible rule for faith and practice. Not only for what we believe and how we worship, but also the only infallible standard for how we live our lives as well. If our desires and goals cannot be supported or defended by Scripture, our goals and desires must vanish in the shadow of the Holy Word of God. As Christians who trust in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation, we cannot, dear ones, we cannot be conformed to our own desires. We cannot be conformed to the desires of this present world. They will consume us and eat us up if we allow them to conform us to themselves. 
We must be rather transformed by the Holy Spirit to the will of Christ as He gradually renews our minds from worldliness to godliness. From the perspective of man's will to to the perspective of God's will. If you're not willing to follow the Lord in His will wherever He may lead you, wherever He may lead you, that first must be resolved. What's the problem there? Why aren't you willing to go where God may lead you? We must ask then the question, who is really the Savior and the Lord of our life? Or at least, who are we acting like is the Savior and the Lord of our life? Beloved, He may take us down the very paths that we had planned to go. And that's always a happy time when the Lord takes us down the paths that we wanted to go anyway. Or, He may scrap those plans. Being who He is, our sovereign God. And He may take us down another path which we had not planned to go. For who among us, if we were planning our lives, who among us would seriously have included in our plans those, all those setbacks in our health? Who among us would have included in those plans those injuries that we sustained, those surgeries, those physical afflictions? Who among us would have included in those plans the, the loss of our job, Who would have included the financial troubles that we have faced? Who would have included broken relationships, beloved relationships with family members or friends? Who would have included periods of time where it seems that nothing is falling into place in our lives as we had planned? Who would among us would have done that? Dear ones, we want a comfortable life. That's where our desire is. We don't want a holy life as much as we want comfort. That's our sinful desire. But as we begin to have our minds renewed according to the will of God, we see that God is infinitely more interested in our character than He is in our comfort. In our faith and trust in Him than making it easy for us. And that's what a father, a loving father does. He sees what's most important in developing us and caring for us. But dear ones, all of those very events, those setbacks that we just went through were included in God's plan for your life and for mine. And that is why the present and the future must be committed every day to the Lord our God for man's for man proposes as we said before but God disposes have you have you become frustrated have you become angry have you become discouraged in waiting and waiting and waiting for God's answer have you even become bitter over hopes and dreams and plans you had made for the future with which have been interrupted, delayed, or altogether canceled. Let me ask you, 
Are you wiser than God? Is anyone going to raise their hand this morning and say, Yes, I'm wiser than God. God would say to you as he did to Job, Where were you? Where were you when I created all things? Where were you when I brought the world into existence? God has no counselors. God needs no counselors, for he does all things right the first time, even the setbacks, even the discouragements, even the pains and afflictions that his people endure. And dear ones, may God help us to realize in our anger, perhaps even our silent, buried anger, which no one else sees, we attack the very character and the faithfulness and the love and the mercy of God when we attack His plan for our lives. Where is our peace and contentment when it appears that all of our plans for the future have been radically changed due to circumstances beyond our control? Remember, dear ones, the words of Paul, who knew what it meant to have future plans changed by unforeseen events, because he was in prison when he wrote these words. He didn't plan on going to prison. He didn't say, well, next week I'm going to spend the next year and a half or two years in prison. But God ordained it that way. But he said from that prison cell, for to me to live is Christ. Wherever I am, whether I'm in prison or out of prison, whether I'm in good health or poor health, whether I have much or I have nothing, for me to live, my purpose, my reason for living is Jesus Christ. And then he said, because that's the case, my reason for living is Christ, to die is gain. I don't leave that which is most important to me behind because he who is most important to me is Christ and he is in heaven. And so, when I die, death is gain because I go to be with my Savior. Although we are to make godly plans for the future invoking God's blessing upon them, we are not to give way. By God's grace, we are not to give way to anxiety and fear about the future. One of the most encouraging portions of Scripture, dear ones. When we get filled with anxiety, it's simply to go to the Sermon on the Mount, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Meditate and reflect upon these blessed words. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Those are pretty important things, wouldn't you say? The Lord says, take no thought. Don't become anxious. Fill with anxiety. Fearful even about those things. <clears throat> For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. 
But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Now he's not saying don't make plans, but don't be anxious. Don't be worried about tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Or one other passage in those times of anxiety to go to. Let your heart, mind, rest. These words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing. That means, again, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But some, but all that you need. There was a slogan years ago. It may still be a motto or a slogan that uh, this insurance company uses, but it went like this. You're in good hands with Allstate. Beloved, you're in good hands. Yea, you are in the best hands with Christ. You can't be in better hands than the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is your trust in the Lord when your plans don't work out? Do you give up, throw up your hands and dive into depths of depression and discouragement? Why do you do that? Why do I do that? The Lord hasn't failed us. He can't. He would cease to be God. He would cease to be who he is if he failed us. He is leading and guiding you and me into the future, into uncharted waters, into unknown territory, just as he did Abraham who didn't know where he was going or how he would provide for himself. But according to Hebrews 11.8, Abraham went forth in obedience to the revealed will of God and God directed him, cared for him, kept him. Make godly plans for your life that are agreeable to God's revealed will in Scripture. Every day, work diligently by God's grace toward those goals, but rest in Him to bring it all together in His time and in His way and for His glory and for your greatest good. Thus, let us not boast proudly about all the tomorrows we have scheduled For all of the tomorrows belong to the Lord our God and not to us. Our second main point is this, a reason for this caution. In Proverbs 27, the second part of uh, verse 1. Proverbs 27, 1b.
Again, the first part says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Second part, For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. The reason given here by Solomon as to why we must not boast about tomorrow is that we are not omniscient in knowing what tomorrow may bring. The Lord declares the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. All events are within the grasp of God and his knowledge and his almighty providence, directing and ordering all things. From the casting of a lot, according to Proverbs 16.33, to the exact number of hairs of our head, according to Luke 12.7, to the falling of a sparrow to the ground, according to Matthew 10, verse 29, to the sin of man, according to Acts 4, 27 and 28, to the provision of our daily needs, according to Matthew 6, 30, and to the salvation of God's elect, according to 2 Timothy 1, 9, nothing is left to chance from God's perspective. Therefore, James, as we read earlier in James 4.15, declares to us that we should always make tentative plans for our future here on earth and even qualify our godly appointments for the future with if the Lord will or God willing. If not explicitly, then at least implicitly. One significant event, and this I will be spending the remainder of minutes that we have here, one significant event that may occur tomorrow, which we have not foreseen, may be our own death or the death of a loved one. Perhaps that's been brought home to you to some degree this past week as we have considered the death of President Ronald Reagan. Consider the following ways that the shortness of life and the nearness of death is portrayed in Scripture. It's portrayed as a night's sleep. I mean, while you're, at sli- while you're sleeping, you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, you don't say, wow, I feel like Rip Van Winkle that I just slept for hundreds of years. It just passes that quickly. According to Psalm 90, verse 5, that's what it compares it to, a night's sleep, this life. Or it compares it as, as grass that grows one week and then is cut down the next week. I mow my lawn every week. It may grow, but it's going to get cut down if I have the strength to do it. But that's how long life is, according to the psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 6. We see in James 4.14 that we read earlier that it's as a vapor. It's as a mist which quickly dissipates when the sun again appears. That's how short life is. Dear ones, Physical death is divinely appointed for all men, whether male or female, whether prince or pauper, president or citizen, whether married or single, whether parent or child, whether young or old, whether Christian or non-Christian. Men may be late for appointments here upon the earth. They may forget about certain appointments as I have done. Some of you can testify to that fact, perhaps. They may even refuse to keep 
certain appointments which they don't want to be present for in this life. But there is one appointment which no man, no woman, and no child will be late for, will forget, or can refuse to keep, and that is death. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. To those who have not embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal salvation, death is the end of earthly joys and the beginning of everlasting sorrow. To those who have received by faith alone Jesus Christ and his free offer of eternal life and receive the righteousness of Christ and are trusting in Christ's righteousness and not in their own righteousness. Death is the end of earthly sorrows and the beginning of eternal joys. But someone may ask, why should we become so familiar with the certainty of our own death? What advantages are there? Well, let me give you very quickly, a few. Because our death is certain, we should shake ourselves, dear ones, from our own hypocrisy and going through the mere motions of faith and worship that's present in all of our lives to varying degrees. We all practice hypocrisy to varying degrees and going through the motions of our faith and our love for Christ. We cannot play games with the Lord. But there is coming a time when all facades and acting in the part of a Christian will fade away. And we will, be, uh, we will either enjoy the heavenly blessings of a genuine living faith in Jesus Christ or suffer the hellish curse of a dead faith which trusted in one's own good works rather than in the works and the obedience of Christ. Secondly, because our death is certain, we should realize that not only do we need life through Jesus Christ ourselves, but our loved ones need life through Jesus Christ. In fact, all men will perish if they do not trust in Christ alone to save them from their sins. We should see the eternal significance of pressing home, dear ones, we who are parents and grandparents, or even if you don't have children, that you pray for the other covenant children in the congregation, pressing home to our covenant children their need of Jesus Christ, of earnestly praying for God to draw our children, our covenant children, to Jesus Christ, through faith, of spending more time in praying for them, spending more time in promoting their spiritual well-being than that which will merely promote their earthly pleasure. Dear ones, as we become acquainted with the certainty of death in our daily lives, we will also become more interested in bringing the gospel of salvation to this needy world of lost and perishing sinners. We will weep for those who are lost and perishing. We will pray that God would raise up more and more and more faithful ministers to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We will give our resources to the proclamation of the gospel through preaching and distribution of literature and to the establishment of faithful, reformed, and covenanted churches. 
A sober consideration of our own death ought not to cause us to begin to press the panic buttons. For it is God, our Father, who has ordained the days that we should live for his glory and for our own good. It's not Satan that determines those things. It is God, our Father, in whom we trust, who has determined those days. But this truth, dear ones, ought to bring the Christian, the certainty of our death ought to bring the Christian out of fantasy land. It ought to bring him back to reality. It ought to bring him out of living life for his own pleasures. And seeing that there are things infinitely more important. Living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have no guarantee that we will be alive tomorrow, dear ones, we cannot afford to waste the time, the talents, and the resources that God has given to us. But we must seek to redeem the time. For the days are evil. Dear ones, an intimate and personal recognition of our own weakness to rescue ourselves from death. And I want to leave this with you in closing. An intimate and personal recognition of our own weakness to rescue ourselves from this desperate situation we call sin and its effects, namely consequences, namely eternal condemnation in hell, should drive us from placing any confidence in ourselves placing any confidence, in fact, in any mere man, regardless of his title, regardless of his place, whether in the state or in the church. Our full confidence must be in one who is divine, who alone can save, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. They must turn us from looking inward to see whether we are worthy to be saved and to recognize there is no worthiness in us to be saved. That all worthiness rests in Jesus Christ and His perfection. And that our faith be not turned inward, but our faith be turned upward to Christ alone. People can trust in so many things to usher them into heaven today. As I said, their own good works they can trust in. They can trust in their church. They can trust in their minister or priest. They can trust in their good intentions. God speaking in Scripture is ever so clear that none of these things can of themselves save us from hell and usher us into heaven. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, God says in Isaiah 64, 6. In fact, good works are not that which prepare us for salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. The church and its ministers are merely human beings And they cannot save. In fact, even the apostles made it very clear that they 
The apostles of Jesus Christ could not save anyone. They did not have the power to do so. They recognized their place. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and following. Read as follows. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? Or we could add, who is Peter? Who is John? Or any of the other apostles. He goes on to say, but ministers, by whom ye believe. By whom? Not in whom ye believe. By whom ye believe. Even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted. Apollos watered. But understand this. God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planted anything. Paul's nothing. Neither is he that watereth. Apollos is nothing in regard to the matter of who saves the sinner. But God that giveth the increase. He is everything. And dear ones, good intentions never saved anyone. Good intentions never saved anyone. For Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the way of death. As it says, and we have probably heard it many times, hell is paved with good intentions. It's not our good intentions that save us. It is Jesus Christ who alone can save. To trust in our own works, dear ones, is to say that Christ did not suffer enough. His suffering wasn't sufficient for us. We need as well to suffer. Or we need to perform good works in order to be saved. Christ did not fulfill the law of God sufficiently enough for us. Dear ones, Christ is our salvation. We are helpless to save ourselves. We are doomed to die both physically and eternally in hell if we lean upon our own strength, upon our own works of righteousness, upon our own wisdom. And it is that earnest confession that drives us out of ourselves, dear ones, and into the open arms of the Lord Jesus Christ who is freely offered to sinners to all sinners who will come to him, even to the chief of sinners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question, dear ones, is not whether you will die. That is a certainty. The question is, when will you die? It could be today. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be the next month, the next year, or many years from now. Neither you nor I know the timing of our death regardless of how long, because it will happen sooner or later, we must not plan our lives as if it will never, ever happen, but rather plan our lives in such a way as to consider the certainty and nearness of death in order that we may make our todays and our tomorrows count for the Lord. If that thought 
brings fear to you today and you would rather run from that thought than embrace it. May I encourage you with these words in closing from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, dear ones, Jesus Christ alone is the resurrection and the life. His empty tomb is the shout of joy and certain victory over death to everyone who will turn from trusting man, trusting in their own works, and rather place all of their hope and confidence in Christ who is righteous and powerful to save. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou hast humbled us before Thee again to show us our mortality, our corruptibleness in this life. We are but a vapor. Though made in Thine image, Lord, we have departed far from that image. We have departed far from Thy glory. We have gone our own ways. We brought shame and disgrace to the name of God by our sins and the way we have lived. But Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save those who know they're sinners, not those who believe themselves to be righteous. And so, Lord, we who are sinners cast ourselves upon Christ. We who are sinners embrace Him alone for our eternal salvation. We turn from trusting in our own works. We turn from trusting, O Lord, in our church. We turn from trusting in in our ministers. We turn from trusting in our good intentions. We turn to Christ alone and embrace Him and His perfect obedience and His perfect suffering as alone sufficient to bring us to God and to forever keep us there in that relationship with Thee. We pray, Father, that Thou would help us as a result of Thy Word today to order our lives aright, to not be anxious about tomorrow. Yes, to make godly plans, to include Thee, to make plans that that are according to Thy revealed will, but also to rest, O Lord, in Thy providence and Thy care when plans do not work out as we had hoped that they might, to know that Thou art the living God who makes no mistakes and who can do Thy children no wrong. O Lord, we love Thee, we praise Thee today for the gift of salvation. We pray, Father, that Thou would send us forth to do now those many good works that Thou hast called us to do, not because we would be accepted in thy sight, but because we have been accepted in thy sight through Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, we are righteous through Christ, we now go forth to perform those deeds of love and kindness which thou hast called us to. We ask, Lord, all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.